Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark-Moore, and joining me once again is Caroline Deason. How's it going, Caroline? Good, thanks, Dylan. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Is there uh, anything cool you've been watching on Netflix recently, Caroline? Yes, I just finished Master of None. Uh, I just crushed it in a weekend, and it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. Well, the movie that we are here to discuss this week is a 2000 Joel and Ethan Cohen joint, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? How would you, how would you say that? Would you, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. I kind of just run it all together. But, I do, yeah. Oh but Brother, is, Where Art Thou? There is punctuation. There is. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Fair enough. Yeah, Because it's a good. question, but it's a, it's a rhetorical question, I think. Like, it's not like, oh, brother, where where art thou? Where <laughs> where art thou? It's not like that. It's a rhetorical question. Do you know Do you know why it's called that? Did you Did you look this up? I looked it up. Actually, let me look it up really quick, because I don't want to. Uh, okay, so the uh, title is from, uh, it's a reference to a movie from 1941 called Sullivan's Travels, where there's a director in that movie who wants to make a movie about the Great Depression, and he wants to call it Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So it's a, a fictional movie in this other movie. So the Coen brothers decided to actually make it. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. It is lovely. I'll just finish your work 60-odd years later. That's right. Yeah. The way that Netflix describes this movie, first and foremost, when you hover over the title, it says... Ex-cons on the run face endless dangers, witchy women, KKK members, an insane Bible salesman, and one angry ex-wife. Oh my god, is that really what it says? I promise, that's what it says. That's horrendous. It's... <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. No, that's... I'm, I'm done. The podcast is <laughs> over. I'm too incensed by this. We have to go to Netflix... Or, sorry, Netflix headquarters and beat someone up for that that's awful <laughs> do you want to do you want to break that down do you want to parse that a bit for us why why it's so bad yeah like what's well, what's like, so why does upsetting it make, about why it why does it make it sound like a friggin awful 80s like action film <laughs> god and they're not they're not like they're not ex-cons they're cons <laughs> <laughs> They're escaped convicts. (laughs) They're not reformed convicts. What? Okay, no, all of that is just really bad. (laughs) Really bad. All right, it gets a lot better when you click on the movie. The description changes to, In the vein of Homer's Odyssey, three convicts break out of a Depression-era Mississippi jail, embarking on an epic quest for a hidden cache of loot. Yes, that one's better. And note that it refers to them as convicts and not (laughs) ex-convicts. Did the other person just vaguely hear about this movie and, like, saw the poster and saw their striped pajamas? (laughs) Goodness. Yeah, and the part about the ex-wife, what was it? Um, And one angry ex-wife. Oh, my God, that sounds so... Like, that just makes it seem like she's running around with a rolling pin trying to beat them and... uh. She pretty much is, though. (laughs) Like, Holly Hunter's character (laughs) in this movie is pretty much like, everything has to happen because because she wants something, right? Because she's made up her mind. And when a woman has made up her mind, there ain't nothing you can do about that. Like, that that is her character, right? Like, she could be shaking a rolling pin and it wouldn't be out of place. Agree to disagree on that front. But anyway. We can come back to that. We'll we'll come back to that, yeah. The categories the movie belongs to are action and adventure, adventures comedies and independent movies and the movie is described as witty yeah 
So the first thing right off the bat that you cannot help but notice is the music. Yes. We start off quite fantastically with, well, I suppose, does it start with the, in the opening credits? Is the, do you get the chain gang? Is that when that's all happening? Yeah, or yeah, is- that's the chain gang at the very beginning. And then there's a title card that has the first couple lines from the Odyssey. Oh, muse, sing me, etc. And then the music comes up. What, do you want me to actually say the quote? Is that- No, it's just what it, Homer's Odyssey would be better. If oh, you, like, Homer got bored partway through. <laughs> oh, muse, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, yeah. When, you, when you're reading the Odyssey, that usually is kind of, you, you skip quite a quite a bit of it and just assume that it's et cetera. Um, but yeah, and then the first song is the Big Rock Candy Mountain after the right. chain game. And Big Rock Candy Mountain is just, it's such an amazing way of setting the tone for the movie and just watching the three of them. The, uh, the montage. Uh, yeah, of them escaping from the chain gang, them kind of running through the field oh, and, yeah, and, and popping up. up while this this fun, lilty, jingly country bumpkin tune is going on in the background. It's so perfect for setting the tone and just getting you so excited for what you're going to see and the fun that you're going to have watching the movie. Just the soundtrack overall, it is very much a musical. And I'm surprised that that wasn't one of the categories that That's it belonged true, to. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's as much a musical as... as pretty much anything else out there in that you get music that's both layered on top but you also get music that's performed by the cast and and within the movie um and that you know advances the plot itself right which even a lot of musicals musicals (laughs) don't where they just kind of take a break for people to go and sing but this is actually it's crucial to the plot for this to happen yeah I, i actually had the soundtrack to this movie i don't know why i don't know under what circumstances i was like i need to own this I think it was because I saw the movie and I fell in love with it. And I was just, I needed to own the That's soundtrack. Good. But the soundtrack sold exceptionally well. It won a Grammy. It did. It won the uh, the Grammy for Best Album. And if you had told me that in the year 2000, a movie soundtrack filled with country and... Bluegrass. And spiritual and bluegrass songs that's all piecemeal with, I don't think, any original music written for it. It's all kind of Actual. Fr- from decades past. Yeah compile that all together and release it that that was gonna somehow take the world by storm definitely it's a pretty amazing thing to have happened and i realized afterwards that listening to like owning that soundtrack it felt important to own it but i only ever listened to man of constant sorrow right because the rest of it feels perfect to the film itself but it's not a listening experience that i would sit down like oh you know what i can't wait to listen to down by the river like it's it's yeah, like I said, it's it's perfectly suited for the film itself and for setting the tone and kind of putting you in these different places. Wait a minute, so you're saying that you don't listen to Oh Death like while you're in the shower? Is that Not often. <laughs> I did once. It didn't go well, so I've... I can assume. Yeah, I actually because I'm you know not a fan of country at all and i would i'm such not a fan of country that i would describe this music as bluegrass and not country in order to uh you know distance just myself give, just to give yourself permission to like it exactly just to give myself permission to like it and yeah and i i remember watching this movie um i didn't see it in theaters but i uh, saw it quite um soon after it was released on home video and this is my dad's favorite film so i've seen it a whole bunch of times because it was always on in my house he had it on vhs we bought it for him on DVD, but he still watched it on VHS after. <laughs> and uh, we got him the soundtrack, and he played the soundtrack all the time in his truck. And so, yeah, the soundtrack is a, a big part of my, uh, you know, the early 2000s. That's, I, I remember it really well. That formative album for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, the and I was actually listening to, I've been listening to it a lot since I watched it the other day. But, 
you know, there's a huge difference between the feeling that I get when I listen to I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow when George Clooney seems to be singing it, you know, when Everett is singing it versus when I hear it on the actual soundtrack. Do you do you feel that? It never gives me the same kind of like spine tingling excitement as it does when you see the characters singing it. Man of Constant Sorrow is the exception for me because that recording is so amazing and because when you're watching it it's so clear that George Clooney is lip syncing. singing it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is unfortunate, but like there, there is an energy that comes from that, and there's a, f- it's fun, and I don't think it's intentionally kind of that jarring kind of fun where you realize he's lip syncing, but he's just going for it anyway. I don't think that's quite on purpose. Right. It's a different experience, but I don't think it's a lesser experience to listen to it because it's an incredibly catchy and uplifting and 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 really engaging tune. Because having it stuck in my head for the last week. It's got nothing to do with the association with George Clooney's face, although he is very much <laughs> kind of the, the winningest part of this movie outside of the music. The The movie also speaks very much to the power of music in, in, in a few ways, uh, specifically with how it brings people together. Like the one that caught me off guard was how engaged I was at the KKK rally mm. because they have that really cool hypnotic that's the Odeth one. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. When they're doing Odeth, that, that they have all these movements and everything, and this this elaborate dance thing, <laughs> this dance sequence that they do, where everybody's moving in tandem with each other, and it's like an army march. Um, while there's this this really commanding spiritual presence happening at the same time, and I think that really speaks to the power of music. Where I wasn't, you know, ready to like throw a robe over my head or anything like that and actually join in. Mm, good. But, good. <laughs> I hope that that doesn't have to go without saying, but <laughs> it did. It, it makes it easier to understand that, along with the charisma that the the Grand Dragon or whatever they're called, Wizard, Grand Wizard, Wizard Dragon, Dragon Wizard, <laughs> Smaug, let's call him. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it doesn't just speak to the the charisma that Homer Stokes has as the the ringleader of the KKK or that, that sect of them. But the the music really brings them all together and it gives them kind of a purpose and a harmony to the the intent that they have. It really shows them as a united force. It's not uplifting, obviously, because we're talking about a hate group, but it's you see that kind of empowerment from everybody being together with each other and that just wouldn't happen in the same way without music. And it happens again later with their... when the soggy bottom boys are performing at the end that everybody's able to rally together because of this this thing that is heightened above all the rest of the political rhetoric and rest of the conversations that happen it's music that brings everybody together and it's music that transcends race and and creed and politics it's music that brings everybody together and it's true and and really powerful and really inspiring to see for sure but also the i mean the the politicians both homer and menelaus um, know that they need to have a campaign song, right? Like they need to have these campaign musicians. And I was looking it up and that's actually something that really did happen in the South um, in uh, 19th and early 20th century uh, politics. They usually had bands that they traveled around with to have, you know, specific songs and to basically, you know, pander to their constituents uh, to try and get them on board. And so like, while I agree with you that clearly the music is bringing everybody together, but at the same time, the whole thing that makes it so that Homer is 
they run Homer out of town on a rail is because he doesn't approve of the Soggy Bottom Boys, right? And that everyone else loves the Soggy Bottom Boys. And then Menelaus, I think he, I think his line is, I see a, an opportunity and he takes that opportunity. So he decides, he sees that, the, okay, the crowd loves these guys. So I'll say that I love these guys and the crowd will love me, right? So while I agree that it, it is bringing them all together, there is still a political savvy that's going behind using this music yeah definitely and the probably the most engaging thing the most interesting thing about this movie for me was the politics of it and also the non like how non-politicized the politics in this movie are because when we see uh papio daniels was how i remember him yeah it, yeah, same yeah. Guy. his name is menelaus papio daniels right menelaus passed the biscuits papio daniels <laughs> right <laughs> which is based on a real politician whose uh nickname was Pappy. Right. I think it was actually just Pappy O'Daniels that was his name. And he also was in the flower business and he had his cat, uh, catchphrase was pass the biscuits as well. So this is like, you know, right from the pages of actual Southern politics history. So when we meet him, we kind of get the idea that he's a, he's a dick because all we see him do is just <laughs> beat his son with his hat. Right. And be rude to people who could potentially be constituents <laughs> yeah. because he's going in he's not one at a time in it right he's mass communicating exactly <laughs> so he's going in to talk into a can as they say to have his political message or at least his rhetoric kind of spread out over the airwaves to everybody and the only thing that we know about him is that he's a politician and that he's rude we have no idea what his politics actually are we just know that he is a politician and he's a dick and then when we first... And he's the incumbent. Right. And then he's the incumbent. He's looking for his second term as governor. So then when we meet Homer Stokes, all we know about him is that he is just by default the opposite side of whatever it is that Pappy represents. And he's looking for reform. And the when he's talking, he's not saying anything. No, he's speaking just... entirely in political rhetoric. Yeah. And he's using images and ridiculous <laughs> metaphors, the sweeping away the what does he say? Sweeping sweeping away the he's got this word that means nothing, like you said. <laughs> the interests. That's it. He's sweeping away the interests. Right. Uh... <laughs> Um, because he stands up for the little man. And he he apparently stands for reform and change. And you get that cute moment where Papio Daniels is talking to his kids. And they're like, what should we do? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Should we try some of this reform stuff that seems to be working for the other yeah. guy? And he whacks him again man. with the hat. Like, we can't be reform. We're the incumbent. <laughs> so it's just like nobody really understands. Nobody's actually talking about politics or change. It's just about vying for that position, vying for that power. And then... Papio Daniels comes in at the end and he endorses himself with the Soggy Bottom Boys by endorsing the Soggy Bottom Boys and being incredibly effective. Like when he gets up on that stage and he starts just juking and jiving and like <laughs> Ric Flaring his way up to the Soggy Bottom Boys, it's not like you feel like I felt it. I was like, you know what? Like you, like you go, girl. Like get some. It's he he gets it and he he capitalizes on it and he's able to be effective as a politician and get his second term and be successful but at no point is anybody saying anything it's this political debate that has no politics and i think that that was really poignant to just kind of point out that 
it's this is all just it's puppetry it's a game it's in many cases especially around election time like so much of it is just about whatever it takes to get into power and using that rhetoric like in canada we just went through a major election where we elected a new prime minister and you know we've seen this how you know you can latch on to one topic and make the conversation entirely about that topic in order to get people angry and fired up even though you're not saying anything or if you're the politician that has dead mouse as his campaign song that's cooler than the other politicians who have is less... that what he did yeah he had a dead mouse song the belt as his campaign song did he yeah <laughs> who's canadian too so that's you know i didn't realize that that's yeah i like him even more now <laughs> good good for you <laughs> um but i think another thing that i only really noticed this time when i was watching it is homer stokes being the grand wizard of the kkk finally gives us the viewer a reason to root against him because like you said there up until then we have no idea what either of these politicians politics are and all we know is that you know the whole country is in a the great recession or sorry the great depression <laughs> what's that amazing line the one character has um about the depression they, said, they, they, got they, got, they got this depression on yeah <laughs> as if it's just yeah as if somebody just like chose to have a depression yeah like it's yeah. like they've got a sail on down at, <laughs> i was gonna say walgreens but that's woolworths. not a canadian you have to sure. say woolworths because woolworths. That's, there we go that's the that's the store that ever gets kicked out of and then later delmar's like was it just that one or all woolworths <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so i i i only noticed that now that that kind of gives us a real reason to to rally against homer even though Papio Daniels doesn't seem like that great of a guy either. No, he's just he, he he's effective at capitalizing on an opportunity and then for the viewer of the movie, he is the lesser of two evils because one of them is an outspoken member of a hate group. Right, yeah. Who when he, you know, reveals that he's seen these the Soggy Bottom boys before and that they disrupted their meeting and he says something like, I'm a member of a uh you know, a group of people. I don't think I have to tell you what the name is. Yeah, a, you know, se a certain secret society. That's it. Thank you. And so it's it's clear that he knows that people are not going to be you know that receptive to this. So he's keeping it a secret for his his campaign. He's keeping this side of his politics a secret, and that's you know a level of sinister beyond the the already very sinister KKK scene, which by the way scares the hell out of me. I'm still really scared of that scene. I remember like as like how old was I in two thousand. How old were we in 2013? Yeah. As like a 13, 14 year old. I mean, that that sounds kind of old, but no, I was still a baby. I'm still a baby now with scary scenes. But the KKK scene does not evoke any like sort of ridiculousness to me at all, which is what when I was reading about this movie, a bunch of people have likened that scene to the scene uh, in springtime or in uh, the producers, the springtime for Hitler scene in the musical. You know the Nazi dance that they do in Springtime for Hitler and right. how ridiculous it is. People were likening the dancing in of the KKK in this movie to that. No, right? not at all. Thank you. Like, like no, it's more like it's more evocative of like a like a dark, sinister ritual. Yeah, of an it's, actual secret society. Yeah, that, it's not silly. This isn't like Django Unchained, where you've got Jonah Hill not being able to put his hood on properly. It's, it's horrifying. Really, like it's meant to be scary. Yeah, like they're they're threatened by death. They're at the risk of being exposed. What did what was a little bit silly was when their hoods got pulled off, and because they were dirty, Homer Stokes was like, "Oh, they're whatever the word he uses for uh, mixed the, race." He says the the colored color guard is colored, 
Right. Yeah. And then he's got another word that he uses for when he's describing a, a person as being of mixed ancestry. Oh, he he says miscegenation. That's the one. Yeah. I don't know what that word means. So miscegenation is when, uh, like, a miscegenated marriage is between uh, someone from, uh, like, either a white husband or a black husband and the opposite um, right. wife. <laughs> right. So is that word, like, politically charged, saying it the way that he does? I just assume that it is. Or is that just kind of, like legit if you acknowledge the validity of race uh, like is he calling them a mudblood mud or <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah he's well he's okay well he's saying that when you're talking about when he's talking about soggy, the soggy bottom boys right right yes yeah so he's saying that because um not because he thinks that they're all black now he just sees that there's one black member and three white white oh, members okay. and so he's calling that miscegenated because it's a mixed it's just the same right. as saying like they're mixed races in this which oh, okay. he does not approve of right so he would not approve of the spice girls but he'd be fine with the backstreet boys that's right so it is it is really scary it's very ritualistic mm-hmm. it's threatening mm-hmm. like you feel like they're going to die and you feel that their friend tommy yes tommy, tommy yeah. yes nailed it like you feel like he's going to die and there's no possible route of escape for them because there are so many people who are so well coordinated vying for tommy's death yeah like it's a really for i don't understand why somebody would be reading that as i have silly. no idea there I, I saw a lot of weird critic reviews to this movie but I, I i also wanted to point out too like obviously you know at the beginning and and the netflix the good damn it then okay isn't that tough yes it's extremely <laughs> tough um the Netflix description, the one that I approve of, says <laughs> that it's inspired by the Odyssey or something. Or right, yeah, yes. and um, and even the movie, the one of the title cards actually says inspired by the Odyssey yeah, or something, based right? Based on Homer's Odyssey or right, something like yeah. that. Yeah, um, and that's that's one of my favorite scenes when it comes to actual Odyssey. Uh, <laughs> I just think the title card is one of your favorite scenes. No, no, sorry. <laughs> the fact that they acknowledge it. No. <laughs> Yeah, the movie, it's downhill from there after that. <laughs> um, no, the KKK scene is one of my favorites when it comes to um, links back to the Odyssey because in the Odyssey, when they are defeating, when they have to, you know, when they f- they finally defeat the Cyclops, the way that they're able to do that, Odysseus and his men, is they hide underneath the sheep that um, Odysse- that the Cyclops keeps. The Cyclops is a shepherd. And so there's a couple different links there where, like, you know, you can say the KKK, they're all just sheep following you know, the, this horrible, um, weird secret society. And then the fact that they clothe themselves in, you know, the garb of the rest of the flock is, has a, a really cool connection there. And right. then obviously John Goodman's character, um, Dan Teague, he is a, a literal cyclops and gets defeated at that, at that rally when the cross falls down on him. Speaking of the Odyssey and how it's based on that, have you heard about the rumor, which is, it's not really a rumor, but the Coen brothers said this themselves in an interview or something, that the only person on the whole set, cast and crew, that had read the Odyssey is the guy who plays Delmar, who went to Brown, an Ivy League school, and majored in classics. Really? Yeah. So I, I find that hilarious because Delmar is supposed to be the idiot of the group, right? And right. And he's one of the most highly educated. Um, and he's apparently the only person who read the odyssey and the coen brothers say that they're basing their reading of the odyssey and their retelling of the odyssey on what they've picked up from other retellings of the odyssey in pop culture (laughs) what do you think about that well see i don't know because in looking at a list of the comparisons of like this is a reference to this this is a reference to that 
I feel like unless they had read the whole text or at least had a Coles Notes version of it, there are a lot of very specific references that you'd have to be pretty familiar with it. So, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put it past... I mean, we know that the Coens are willing to forego truth for the sake of making a mythology about their own movies. Like with Fargo, really pushing the whole, this is based on a true story, this actually happened, when, no, it didn't. <laughs> and if you... Like, I, I get that you're, you're setting that up as, as that world. Um, but I, I don't really even see the purpose of saying that in the first place but how else could you get it but then also it, i mean the odyssey in my understanding again i'm counting on you kind of knowing everything <laughs> is like a grand sweeping thing that maybe it would be possible to stumble across some some references accidentally well um i think that when in that quote they talk about how you know they know it from when the odyssey is parodied and other things right so it's, it's like learning about the godfather by watching the simpsons thank you oh my god exactly yes that's exactly what i was going to talk about the reason that i brought this up is because when i was doing my research for this podcast i i always look up because i i have access to uh project muse and jstor and everything like that because i'm a grad student so i always try and look up to see if someone has written something academic on the you know movie that we're doing Surprisingly, did not find anything about practical magic. <laughs> Possibly not so surprisingly. <laughs> but I did find lots about um, O Brother Out, though. Also not surprising. And the paper that I found that I like the most is now one of my favorite papers of all time. It was uh, published in um, a journal, the Journal of the Classical Association of Canada, whose name I probably can't pronounce. Museon? Museon? M-O-U-S-E-I-O-N. We can link to this somewhere. Um, and uh, it's just called The Coen's uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou in Homer's Odyssey? And it's by Janice uh, Siegel. And her whole premise to this paper is that the Coen brothers are lying and that they know the Odyssey <laughs> really well because look at all of these parallels. And right. she painstakingly goes through the movie and the Odyssey and matches them up to like an incredible degree to the point where when Papio Daniels at the end says, holy moly, you know, these, these boys are a hit, right? right. She, point, she says that that's similar to this herb that Odysseus eats that's called moly. <laughs> like, like, it's incredible, the, the, the detail that she goes into. And it just blew my socks off. It made me appreciate the movie on a whole different level. Right. Because I was under the impression that it was kind of like a loose, loosely um, based. And there were some interesting parallels. For instance, the, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, Cyclops, sheep thing. And also how, um, you know, Ul his name is Ulysses. Uh, how Everett and the rest of the Soggy Bottom boys have to disguise themselves to come back, and that's how they prove... That's how Everett proves himself to his wife. You know, mm -hmm. that's the same plot right. as, as the Odyssey. Um, but I had no idea that it was this meticulous. And after reading her paper, I completely agree that Coen brothers are lying about this. They knew exactly what they were doing, down to, you know, everything. Every little detail is exactly the same. There's a statue of Homer... As in yes. the the author of the Odyssey, in the restaurant where Everett and the others meet the Cyclops, like come on, <laughs> come on, it's unreal. I love the idea of Delmar being well read because that the only two things that I know that actor from uh, Tim Blake Nelson, I believe his name. Yes, yeah, are this and the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where he plays a dumb hit cop who is. Like, she's supposed to be 
uh, Kimmy Schmidt in her show is supposed to be kind of completely out of touch with pop culture because she's been are you familiar with the show i watched like the first few episodes right okay so so because she's been underground for decades right and then when her dad shows up or her stepfather shows up he is even more clueless than she is about how the world works because he's just this small town bumpkin cop oh he's the dad he's the he's the father-in-law oh interesting okay Yeah. yeah so it's 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 I don't know. I feel bad for this actor. I know. Yeah, maybe what? I don't know. Maybe he likes to play this yeah, kind. Yeah, he's but he's, like, he's, he's got this this perfect face for emoting idiocy. And uh, I love uh, just a little piece of trivia that I love is that George Clooney apparently trained for weeks to be able to record the song "Man of Constant Sorrow." And they ended up dubbing over it. But then... Oh. I'm sorry. But then <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson is actually singing in the jailhouse now. Really? Right. So this Whoa. unassuming non-star, he keeps kind of breaking out. And that happens again. Like, this is actually textual. But you get that same kind of vibe with Pete, where Pete is also supposed to... I mean, compared to, to Everett, he's supposed to be this kind of unread, you know, country hick type. Yeah. But he's the only one who can pronounce the word accompanist yeah and just doesn't struggle with it at all like everett who is you know this the The gift uh, of gab yes he has the gift of gab he's i I appreciate the irony of me stumbling over my words when i'm trying to come up with that phrase (laughs) so he's got the gift of gab and even the guy whose job it is to know about recording can't say the word accompanist but then when pete comes along john turturro just being amazing just blurts it out like it's like it's no big thing it's a really fun little character quirk that he's kind of silently heroic and silently winning the whole the whole thing yeah definitely i actually the second time that i watched this in the past week i was looking out for times where delmar is not an idiot and and times where pete is more of an idiot than delmar is and i think there's a case to be made that delmar comes across as really stupid but he's often more lucid than pete is when it comes to (laughs) you know certain pointing out certain things um but i do acknowledge my bias against john Turturro. i find him repulsive It's um, rude. Well, okay. Like, obviously, I know that he's a great actor. Um, another Coen Brothers movie that he's in, The Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. Jesus is the most <laughs> he's disgusting. Just, he's so repugnant. Yeah, he's awful. And I know he's supposed to be, so fine. You know, fair play. However, <laughs> another John Turturro movie where he's even worse, Transformers. Okay. Okay. First of all, that movie's awful anyway. But his character is so gross He's, like, hitting on these children. Do you remember? There's, like, that girl programmer who's, like, probably oh, supposed to be of I've, age. But I forget everything about that movie. Well, good. This it's, is burned it's all into just, my psyche. It's all just a blur. But, okay, someone out there in, in Radioland, <laughs> validate me for being grossed out by John Turturro's character hitting on this girl who's, you know, coded at least as being, you know, a teenager. Sure. Even if she is technically 18 or something gross like that. But it's horrible. And, again, I'm sure that he's supposed to be gross. Like, I'm sure that that's part of the thing. But I just can't separate that. But that's also, like... <laughs> two of three movies that he's in where he is somebody who has inappropriate relations with underage people because that's like the jesus in yeah the Big lebowski true like he's a pederast as well so i didn't even i forgot all about that part yeah 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 and so we don't we don't learn a lot about pete i don't think we even know why he's in jail we do learn that he was two weeks away from <laughs> poor, okay. poor pete so no 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 but here that's that's an excellent example of why he's stupider than delmar why would he go along with that he was two weeks away 
it, if you know what I mean, like it, it had nothing to do with anything other than his stupidity. Well, it's greed. Like okay, he, he's being offered I'm, $400,000 in lumping depression greed, era Mississippi. Sure, I'm lumping greed under the umbrella of stupidity, though. And then what his what his goal is with that money is to become a mater d <laughs> at a restaurant that he owns. Like, he's too stupid to realize that he doesn't have to work. He could, he could own the restaurant and just be the guy who goes there and eats three square meals a day and then fucks off. But I, Whereas I, Delmar is like, I'm going to buy back the family farm and own the land. But they both come across as wanting honest work and that even though they have money, they still want to kind of come like... Like Delmar wants the family farm for for reasons of, of pride and and things like that. He says you're not a man unless you own property. So that's identity as much as anything else. But both him and Pete both they both want something where they can continue to work. Like Pete wants he he understands the value of gracious servitude. Like he he wants to own the restaurant so that he can ensure a high quality of standards for his customers, where he's the one who's in control of it. Like I found something kind of beautiful in that, rather than just kind of like you doof, you missed the point. When you own the restaurant, you don't have to serve the. I think you may be giving him a ton of credit, thinking that the reason that he wants to own it is because he wants you know to to ensure quality service. Because it sounded to me that he just wanted to be in a position of power where his staff are saying yes sir, no sir. In a jiffy pit. But he Pete. wanted to be the one saying yes or no, sir, I think, to the clients was the read that I had on it. Oh, was that no, he, he wanted to be in a position of servitude to Well, yeah, he says he does. He wants, to greet, he wants to greet the the swells, I think he calls them. Yes. Yeah. I guess I was thinking of, uh, this is quite appropriate with Creed just coming out this weekend. Um, I was thinking of when Rocky owns his restaurant. And his job is just kind of walk around and schmooze and, like, make everybody happy to be around. Yeah, that's like, true. That, yeah, that's the you kind want of to position, be part of it. Yeah, that's the kind of position that I imagine him being in and just, like, you know, wearing his fancy tuxedo and feeling, like... Feeling important. Yeah, raising himself above his station, but still also kind of separating himself. I don't think this is at all conscious thought that he's having. I think it's just kind of like, if he's imagining himself in high-class society, he can't imagine himself actually as part of it. He right, has to okay. be serving it, but kind of secretly knowing that he, that he belongs there by right. accident of of windfall. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so okay, what do you think about how Everett lied to get them to help him break they out. They were super forgiving. No kidding. Like that 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 was almost deal-breakingly distracting how like Pete's life has been potentially ruined by this man and they have every opportunity to part ways at that point. They're not chained together and they just kind of accept it and they implicitly continue to accept his leadership even though no decision that he has made has led to anything positive for them. Yeah, that would have been a good time to maybe throw back to the blind seer at the beginning and say, okay, well, the blind seer said we were going to get a fortune, even if it wasn't the one that we thought we would get, right? Right. Um, to just kind of tie that in a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, this, the script doesn't do that. So he, they have like an, a brief exchange of anger and then Delmar, the peacemaker, makes it all better, right? That would be... It's such a betrayal. Yeah, it's awful. That I've dragged you away. Like, you understand where he's coming from, but because he apologizes, they just kind of move on from it. Is it because he's got the gift of gab? Like, that's a, that's a very Odysseus thing, I think, in order to just kind of talk his way out of trouble. But the thing I find, with, and I love this about Everett, is that 
like George Clooney's character is that he has he claims to have the gift of gab. Yeah. But everybody sees through it. Yeah. Nobody takes his gift of gab seriously. Like they're immediately rolling their eyes as soon as he opens his mouth. And they're like, okay, you're just you're trying to use fancy words to try and convince me of something. But even Pete but sees through. He's not through that it. clever. He's 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 when uh Dan Teague rips the tree limb off and smacks Delmer in the head. He's like, what's up, Dan? He doesn't even understand what's going on. He's not that clever. He comes across as really clever because he's yes. got this great um, vocabulary, but he does not actually, you know, he can't, he can't actually practice it. Yeah. Just like at the end of the movie where he decides he's going to become a, he's going to become a dentist with a, <laughs> with a phony license when he was, you know, he just went through all of this because he practiced law without, a license, right? right? Like, he hasn't learned anything. Right. The paper that I was talking about points out that the major difference between the two is that Ulysses Everett is a failed Odysseus. Like, he thinks he's got the power that Odysseus has, right. but he doesn't. And even, even Pete sees through it. Like, Pete says, that don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, if, even if he's the secondary moron of the movie, if he <laughs> sees through the bullshit of what you're saying, then you're probably not effective in this thing that you pride yourself on. Yeah. That and your hair, which <laughs> is every reason in the world to be proud of that hair, because he's, it is magnificent. It is magnificent. You're right. Yeah. He's incredibly vain about that, though. That's, that's you know, the trail of Dapper Dan cans. Is literally what, you know, he's leaving a trail behind. Um, and that's what, you know, makes the sheriff find them in the end, right? Who is one of my favorite actors who passed away recently? Daniel Von Bargen. And you might recognize him. He died just this year, actually. Um, and you might recognize him as Mr. Kruger from Seinfeld. I love Mr. Kruger. He's one of my favorite characters on Seinfeld. And he's hilarious and also an idiot. Um, you know, m much of the reason that he's hilarious is because he's completely dim-witted and the fact that george can outsmart him is you know <laughs> really indicative of that and then so to see him play what is essentially the devil according to tommy was also pretty horrifying to me as a as a kid and continues to to be so i really like that that part though where they pick tommy up at the crossroads um because not only is that you know where you go to meet the devil that's right. like what happens in Faust and everything like that. But the crossroads are also really important to Greek mythology. Okay. That's where Hecate, uh, she's the, the goddess of the crossroads. She has three three heads. She can see in three different directions. Okay. Um, and so, you, you know, you would invoke her in a similar place. And she's also... As did the girls in Practical Magic. That's right. And very important to... Uh, I mean, it's a Faustian thing as well, but important to kind of that story that's wrongfully associated to... Uh, Robert Johnson, the idea of you know going to the crossroads, meeting the devil, selling your soul to learn the guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so that's part of that as well. But then that scene where they're sitting in the car afterwards, after pick, picking him up, is one of my favorite moments. Is it when he doesn't look at at Delmar? Because that always <laughs> weirds me out. What do you mean? <laughs> Tommy's in the back seat, sitting next to Delmar. Right. This is okay. the, to the part you're talking about where they yeah, pick Tommy where, up. Where, where they're having their kind of religious debate right yeah where Everett's sitting in the front seat just enthralled and yeah. so giddy that this man who has just sold his souls to the devil right. is sitting with his friends who have just been baptized been saved, and, yeah. and and you know brought the lord into yeah. their lives and, he and says, he's just he's just so happy that this confluence of events has come to pass in the car that he's driving where he's like all right let's see where this goes yeah this is amazing yeah yeah he's such a shit disturber he, he says he's the only person in the car who remains unaffiliated i like yes, that yes it's a good line but the, the reason that i, I said that is 
because they're sitting next to each other, Tommy gets into the car, and Delmar is looking at him, and he says, how's, how's it going, Tommy? And Tommy doesn't even look at him. He's just looking forward. And then Delmar, it's silence. And then Delmar's like, say, I haven't seen a house around here for about half an hour. And it makes me so uncomfortable that they're right next to each other, and he doesn't acknowledge the man's question. <laughs> It's one of those things that just, like, removes me from the movie for a second. Well, isn't it just, like, a greeting, like, how's it going, Tommy? Like I mean, a, yeah. Like a it, rhetorical greeting? That it has to be, but the man, he, the man doesn't look at him. He doesn't nod. He, he doesn't, doesn't nod? He doesn't do anything. No. He's looking straight forward. And then when he asks him about, you know, what were you doing out here? I haven't seen a house. Then yeah. he starts, then he looks at him and starts talking. But it's well, just, he's just been through some shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, thank you. Okay, good. So you've cleared up this, what I thought was an embarrassing, strange bit of, you know, the guy who was playing tommy didn't realize the camera was on him (laughs) (laughs) i think you can forgive some rudeness if somebody's just gone through you know a financial transaction involving the purchase of your immortal soul (laughs) he's pretty chill about it though in general yeah he knew what he was getting into he's like (laughs) what is it that they say why would you trade your soul that's the most important thing you have he's like i wasn't doing anything yeah i wasn't using it you know, so what do you think happened? What do you think happened when Sheriff Cooley went out there, met this guy at the crossroads, and he was like, are you the devil? I'm going to sell my soul to you to help, like, to get really good at guitar. Are you just content to accept this as, like, a weird, you know, possible supernatural aspect of the movie where Sheriff Cooley is some type of demon and he also manifests in that <laughs> transaction and otherwise? Or was it just a weird, he was like, uh, sure, I'm the devil. Uh, now you can play guitar. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was more just kind of like a fun afterthought that the way that Tommy describes the devil happens to match this adversary that they have in the movie. I don't think that it needs to literally be the same person. Uh. I think that it can just kind of be like, un- which is rare for me because normally I'm like, no, I need literal explanations for everything. <laughs> um, but I, it, yeah, it's just kind of fun. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have to... It doesn't have to have a mythology because so much of this movie is about this thing that's probably mystical happened, but it also has a rational explanation at the same time. Like, you're going to see a cow on a roof, and there's this this premonition. So I guess there is magic in the movie, like kind of undisputable magic, because there are these premonitions that come true. Well, I mean, Everett would say that it is, you know, there's always an explanation for it. And so I guess the explanation could just be that Tommy gave this pretty vague uh, description of a person, and then they see this person who fits that, and then and then and then you know we see it through their eyes, and right. they're like, "Oh crap, that's him!" Like that is this. Although that is the devil even, himself. Even though Everett is very much kind of a practical realist in everything, and e- even after he has what could easily be described as a very religious experience, he's immediately dismisses it and says, well, it was going to happen anyway. Well, no, he, because, and he even says people under times of stress can be forgiven for... <laughs> right. Like <laughs> he's even got an explanation yeah, for why... Yeah, he's, he's got the whole idea that. of, like, there are no atheists in foxholes. But earlier on, we kind of get away from that, and he, he disrupts it before that character trait can even really get going, because he's he explains that when somebody is blind... When somebody has, like, a, a disability, then their other senses are heightened, which apparently includes premonition and the ability to see the future. And he just kind of accepts that as, you know, a sense that can be heightened if you lose the ability to see. And he, despite rejecting all other traces of the supernatural, 
he believes in fortune telling. Well, I mean, he says that. And then Pete, I think, says something like, okay, well, then why do you say there's no treasure? And then he immediately says, well, he's just an ignorant old man. (laughs) So I really do think that that's just that's just ever waxing. Like, I've heard of this and some people believe this because I'm so well read and everything. But in this case, this does not apply. This is an ignorant old man spouting nonsense. Right. And because he's got to further the lie, right? Like, he's you know, know. he just needs to respond to every situation with as many words as he can possibly fit out of his mouth at mm-hmm. any given time but that's also a character from the odyssey the the blind seer um right. that's tiresias uh who tells odysseus that his wife is getting married and so you better well like there's suitors lining up and so you better hot foot it back to right. ithaca which is also the name of the town that penny aka penelope from the odyssey lives in so you know it's 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 fraught <laughs> It it has a mythology, but but so much of it is also about kind of mythology upon necessity, and that there's room for it, but you don't it, it you don't necessarily need to nail it down. So, what did you think about when they're floating on that coffin after you know after the flood comes in and saves their hides and drowns all the bad guys apparently? But Tommy, and that poor dog. I don't know. I I'm, I like to believe that the dog did not die because the um the cow killer is enough trauma for me when it comes to animals dying in movies. Right. I forgot about that part. But you know what? That's actually also um, related to the Odyssey. One of Odysseus's men uh, wantonly kills cattle as well and gets in some shit for it. So it's I'm, it's fraught, like I said. How do you feel about the funny, the South is going to change monologue that Everett has, where he's like, they're they're putting electricity up in here and blah blah blah. Yes, sir. That you know, and he, he like he's just been through a near death experience. He's literally clinging to a coffin in order to survive <laughs> at this point. And his two friends, who I love earlier in the movie, where Pete says, and with a guy who can't keep his trap shut, you know, his two friends have got has have had it at this point, I'm sure. And now he's he's all elated again, and he's like, "Yes, sir, the South is going to change," and he has this little spiel about what's going to be different now. What right. did you think about that? I think that that was just Everett being Everett and showing that a leopard doesn't really change its spots. It was really just it, it was him being him. It was him showing how how temporary. Uh, religious experiences can be if you don't bring them into yourself like if you don't accept a spiritual experience as being life-affirming and life-changing then you can move past it and it can just be a thing that happened that you write off and brush off and that's just the kind of guy that he is that even though he gets exactly what he prayed for in the seemingly miraculous way he immediately needs to associate it with something practical that he knew was happening where he has the opportunity to sound like the smartest guy in the room and from there turn it into a diatribe about the future and power of electricity and the amazing modern world that's coming for us can you imagine being married to this guy like it would be awful but you understand why they have kind of this agreement of just like every once in a while she needs to be able to put her foot down and say i have counted to three it makes sense for their relationship that she has to be able to like if i say this this safe word then conversation's over conversation is over because i know that you will go on forever i need to have some way of putting a stop to it yeah and so what did they call her the angry ex-wife we'll loop back yes to the, the angry beginning. ex-wife yeah. yes i mean justified i think like <laughs> she's been through a lot she has to put up with this every day and then he uh you know gets caught 
practicing law without a license, which I'm sure she was not aware of until he got caught. I'm sure that she also thought that he was a lawyer. He's a con right. man, right? Like that's, and he's not a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> but good enough that, I mean, she seems like she's got her head on her shoulders though. Like she, she was probably comfortable and knew better than to ask a lot of questions well, until it went south. she's definitely attracted to him, right? No question. Like, as soon Who as, isn't? Right, exactly. I, it's it's probably my favorite George Clooney movie ever. I'm not a huge George Clooney fan, but I this is my favorite one, and this is the one that I find him most attractive in, for sure. Yeah, and, yeah. the But the, the idea of Penelope being, or sorry, Penny being, you know, an angry ex-wife, we talked about at the beginning of her the idea of her with a, a rolling pin or whatever i i always think of that as being kind of like a naggy like unjustified angry wife who's just you know being you know completely overbearing to her husband yeah i <laughs> i'm not I, sure what, that what that's what i didn't here. love about her though is that she's it doesn't take much for her to to be won back over like I guess it's well, e- yeah, I guess it's easy to move on when you think that your husband's going to be in prison for for years and years and years. Oh, that's what you're saying. Wait, so, to be won back over by by Everett. by Everett, right? Because you know when when he's gone and she's kind of well, although she divorced him first, didn't she? Or yeah, did she, she divorce him because he got arrested? Yes, she quote divorces him from shame, right? Out of shame. So he's been arrested. He's going to be in jail for we don't know how long his sentence is. But yeah, she she's so she's mean-spirited to him in her rejection of him that she like changes the children's names and teaches them to reject their own father even though she clearly has these strong feelings towards him where it's like she's programmed her children to kind of support her what she wants to be hatred towards this man and like she writes to him to tell him i'm getting married to somebody else right she wants to see if he'll do anything about it right and that's like <laughs> that's either really rude to the other guy the the one that she's getting married to who's, who is saying. bona fide yeah and then and then but he's a racist so i'll bet her off is he actually racist i'm or? sure that he knows that homer stokes is the grand wizard of the kkk because he's his campaign manager right yeah i suppose that he's implicitly implicitly racist yeah. and that he's not going out of his way to stop like he's he's not not endorsing homer what but do you mean he's 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 actively working to endorse he's his campaign manager no, i mean he's not like endorsing that aspect of him he's probably oh, the one I who's see. telling him don't not mention to, that yeah. you're part well, of the yeah, KKK. He does. i think he comes over to him while he's talking and he's like uh, shut up like <laughs> this is bad pr <laughs> right so i mean he's good at his job and i mean i think if you're going to be working in that realm then you kind of learn to turn the other cheek uh not that that's an okay way of responding to racism right but we are talking about 1920s I know, America. I was going to say who who wasn't racist, really. Right. So I guess where I was going... And then and then the last thing that we see her do is her insisting that... And I, I get that this is also a reference to the Odyssey, but her insisting that he somehow finds his way to the bottom of a newly formed 40,000-gallon <laughs> quarry or whatever it is that, that they call it. Yeah. Like this basin of land has now been completely submerged underwater. And she says, this has to be... I need this one ring gone from this place. Like, I get that he needs to prove his worth, but there's also a point of, like, diminishing returns where you're being an un- unreasonable person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. And that's, like, it's done for comedic effect, right? Um, I was just going to say that the idea of them, the children, being like, you're not our dad or whatever, that's also from the Odyssey. Like, Telemachus meets Odysseus when he's already in his beggars. Sure. 
you know, thing. And then Athena gives him, like, special vision so that he can see that it's really his dad. And then he's like, oh, my God. It's been ten years. I was a tiny baby when you left. And now I'm a hulking huge man because Greek mythology. <laughs> it does get to a point where, where it can be like, okay, fine. I see how that's a fair Odyssey reference. But it's also like I'm not reading the Odyssey. I'm watching this movie. Yeah. So well, and the Coen brothers it. didn't read it either. But yeah, like I, I still need it to make sense as a movie, even if it is like a. Yeah. I don't know. Or, I like. I think that. I mean, it's for comedic effect that you know. After all of this, she's still not, you know, ceding any sort of power in this relationship. So you know, the the idea of her having to keep that power and to keep him jumping you know right. through hoops i'm okay with it i think it's funny <laughs> well and I, I don't think that it isn't but i think that it also means that you know if you're willing to have her be that then angry ex-wife just isn't far off because oh, she's okay. angry and she's his ex-wife so i see i understand like she's the one who's able to actually challenge him in a way that that it makes him want to settle down because he's like okay you're the one who's actually pushing me hard enough that I don't feel like I can talk faster than and outsmart, even though he can't actually do it to anybody. Yeah, that's She's true. the one person who he respects enough to cower in front of yeah. when he try or instead of trying. Yeah. Okay. Well, as far as like actual descriptive words go, angry ex-wife, fine. But when it comes in the context of all those other terrible descriptors, it just seems like it sells her a little short. I think she's, she's, uh, you know, a much, she, she's, she's pretty conniving too, right? Like as, as you were saying, I think like she's a good match for him in, in his con ways as well. Yeah. The last big thing that I think I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to cover was you mentioned at the end that Everett seems very excited about the coming modern world of everybody being connected and it's neat that a lot of this uh, movie seems to be about technology and communication and how it works. We've already talked about, you know, why for Papio Daniels, for instance, it's way more important to get to the radio station on time than it is to be decent to another human being. Mm. Because getting a message out to mass communicating hundreds or th- yeah, exactly. Mass communicating, getting out to hundreds and thousands of people is more important than being decent to one person because if you can cast a wide net you're going to catch more fish it just it just makes sense to if you have a message that you need to get out to a lot of people use the message that's going to get out to the most people but it's the movie's also critical of that because we see papio daniels being a dick and showing that there's artifice to that that you can choose how to present yourself and write out a script before you go out onto the, the airwaves and that can be a really false way of getting a message across that may not be a genuine representation of the person. So we see radio being used as this tool that's easy to be corrupted, but also because Papio Daniels is sponsoring the show, he's paying money to this radio station to have his own message put out there. That means that the radio station has money and what the radio station does with that money is to sponsor art and to get, musicians from all over the place to say we'll give you money to sing into this can and you end up coming up with these great songs i think man of constant sorrow is a great song yeah and that that song wouldn't have existed in that way without papio daniels having sponsored that show in the first place Mm. so the the method is corruptible and potentially gross but it's also a patron of the arts because it's funding this medium that that has the potential to send other things out but one but it ultimately wouldn't exist if it was strictly dependent on the art itself 
Yeah, definitely. And that's his radio station too, right? Like the Papio Daniel, what is it? Something hour. Um, well, that's his radio show. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I don't think he owns the whole station. Sorry, I meant show. Yeah, yeah. that's his radio show. Yeah. So not only is it him, like, you know, obviously advancing his political career, and not only is he then financing these uh, artists, mm-hmm. but he's actually choosing to play these artists too right on the on the radio station so they're getting even more exposure just through him anyway so i can see what you mean by that the end is justifying the means in this weird patron of the arts who's using it for his own advantage right right so uh, that reminds me of this thing that i read on uh, or that i listened to on another podcast that you introduced me to which is called uh hold my order terrible dresser yes it's a mouthful right so it's a podcast that is covering episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, which is a show that I've never watched, but they did have an episode where they were talking about how um, there was, I guess, a sponsor who wanted to come on to the radio station and put out his own message and give money to the station. But the condition that he had was that he wanted, because he was such a strong patriot, (laughs) he wanted after every segment that he did for them to play the American National Anthem. So that episode, I guess, part of or part of that discussion was about kind of compromising the airwaves for the sake of like, okay, now we have the money to produce quality content, Ah. but we have to pay the bills in the first place by having this other crap on. Um... So, yeah, I just it was interesting to have that conversation about kind of emerging technologies and that something can be both mundane and artistic and great and terrible all at the same time. And that having things like that can be really inextricably tied together, which I think speaks to a lot of the themes of the movie that, I mean, you have kind of the spiritual and the practical working in tandem and possibly dependent on each other or at least very difficult to separate from each other. I was just going to bring up that bit where he's talking about bringing electricity to the south uh, again. And I guess that the actual stage directions in the script are Everett waxes smug before he <laughs> before he gives that that monologue. And the, the yes, sir, the south is going to change when. Um, but the paper that I was talking about before, and this was kind of the part where I my mind was blown. She even relates that back to the uh, the Odyssey, where she talks about how, um, I'll just quote from it, after the Odyssey ends, we know that the humbled Odysseus will follow Tiresias' instructions and carry that oar, as in an oar from his ship, inland until someone asks him about the winnowing fan on his shoulder, and there he will build a shrine to Poseidon and make his sacrifices, because Poseidon's the god that he's pissed off this whole time. Um, Odysseus will forever quell Poseidon's wrath by spreading enlightenment about his cult to a... to a people formerly in the dark about him. Ulysses Everett McGill delights in the knowledge that the flooding of the river, the film's version of bringing the sea inland, as in building Poseidon's shrine inland, will bring electricity to the south, literally bringing illumination to a backward people. I thought that was a level of... Damn. Yeah, right? Like, it's on one hand, you're just kind of like, okay, I know obviously you've been thinking about this so much that you're going to see these connections all the time. But no, I believe this. <laughs> that was pretty incredible. And another reason why I agree that the Coen brothers, not only do they know this text backwards and forwards, but they know it probably better than a lot of, you know, they probably know it better than, what's his name? Tim? Tim Blake Nelson? Yeah, they probably know it better than Tim Blake Nelson, who studied it at Brown. I think that's going to do it for our discussion of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So, as always, Caroline, I want to invite you to give us your rating and MVP. Just a reminder, Netflix's five-star system works as such. Five stars, loved it. Four stars, really liked it. Three stars, liked it. 
two stars didn't like it one star hated it and also your mvp the standout star of oh brother where art thou you have thrown wrenches into the system in the past by choosing houses <laughs> so uh so let's see what you come up with this time <laughs> well no I'm, I'm gonna be boring this time um so i give this movie a five stars for sure it's one of my favorites i will watch it over and over again i've seen it a million times and i'll keep watching it and anyone who hasn't seen it i definitely recommend it um i think i mean i haven't seen a ton of cohen movies i've seen fargo um big lebowski burn after reading and this one and this is my favorite coen brothers movie it's also my introduction to the coen brothers and you know they're weird and wacky wonderful um but did you know that uh roger ebert gave this movie two and a half stars because he thought that while it was enjoyable as it was going you know there were parts of it that he really enjoyed at the end he felt unfulfilled or something and i mean having watched it this past week for the first time in a while i kind of understand what he's saying where at the end of the movie it isn't kind of this triumphant you know finish right like we penny is still pissed we don't know what's going to happen it doesn't seem like there's and there's no resolution there's no resolution delmar no yeah we don't we have no idea what happens to them also we don't know if we should really be rooting for any of these people like they're they're convicts they're not ex-cons they're convicts right like we there's you know there's a lot of a lot of things up in the air um but i actually think that that also reflects the odyssey in that in that way whereas like obviously odysseus is you know looked down on by the gods as being a wonderful human being you know ideal among humans and he's going to be fine and he is he's he's a paragon of goodness even when he lies in his vein and everything it's still kind of like episodic right like there's the odyssey is very episodic and i see this movie as that too so it if you were looking for a kind of very laid out in front of you beginning middle and end i could see why you would be unsatisfied anyway i give it five stars and my mvp i'm not gonna pick the frog or anything like that um i picked george clooney i pick everett he definitely i mean he sold me on this movie from the beginning even before i realized i would like it one of his first lines is the line that my dad repeats all the time and my dad doesn't quote it as if it's from the movie like he's not making a reference to the movie my dad has adopted this as his own <laughs> actual you know and his own motto which is the capacity for abstract thought that's my dad's favorite line okay. in this movie because that's the first time that Pete asks Everett, you know, who who made you leader of this outfit? And uh, Everett says, well, I think it should be the one with the capacity for abstract thought. And yeah, my dad loves that. He applies it to everything. And, you know, in general, it's true. This is a huge thing that comes up all the time with wondering why arts degrees are important. I think that arts degrees definitely give you a capacity for abstract thought. What I don't think my dad understands, <laughs> or maybe he just kind of is willfully ignorant of it because he loves <laughs> Everett so much, is that the abstract thought that Everett has doesn't seem to really help him at all. It's not it's not what ends up getting them any sort of success later on, right? He wants to sing into the tin can to make money. That doesn't seem very abstract to me. It seems like, you know, you're going to make money and it's a good thing to do when they need money also i looked it up ten dollars a piece in 1937 is 167 dollars today which i still think is grossly underpaid <laughs> for singing into that can yeah i mean i don't think that they would know it i think that that's also the radio guy kind of selling it yeah and doing a great job of being like and yeah. i'm gonna give you 
ten dollars. Yeah. It's like when you give a kid a nickel. Yeah. And you get them real excited about it. That's Stephen Root, right? Yes. So he's my secondary MVP if I had to pick one. He is an amazing character actor who I only this time was like, Jesus, is that the guy from Dodgeball? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked it up and it is. It is the guy from Dodgeball. But yeah, um, yeah, George Clooney as Everett. He's yeah, so endearing. And even though it's not him singing, I actually am um <laughs> pretty good at pretending that it is. I I, I, am, I, I don't notice the, the bad uh, lip syncing nearly as much as you do, so that just endeared me even more towards him. Well, there's so much more that he does while he's performing that you can just see past it. Like yeah. when he tugs at the beard yeah, and kind of winks at, my favorite at Penny. Yeah. Or when he's doing that weird... It's it's like he's half rubber band, half doing a Charlie Brown Snoopy dance, where he's <laughs> yeah, just kind of like dance, his head yeah. is still and his body's just undulating underneath him. <laughs> Okay, for me, uh, I'm giving the movie four stars. I when I going into it, I thought I was going to give it five because I have very strong nostalgic feelings towards it. Yeah, um, I think it was also because it it was one of the first like grown up movies that I feel like I watched and I got. I remember watching it with my friend Matt in high school, and he was the one who introduced me to it. And just like a well read guy, and and uh, and I trust his taste in music. He was kind of the person who taught me about music. Like he was the one who introduced me to Tom Waits and things like that. So, so I think that it was formative for me. Watching it now as a, a childish adult, um, <laughs> a lot of that was still there, and it still feels very much like a magical movie much of the time. But I think that 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 kind of not a failure, but the the non resolution of it. Mm. And the sometimes the episodic nature of it made it feel like if you if you didn't engage with a sequence or another, then you know that's probably ten or fifteen minutes that you're not going to enjoy. Yeah. Um. So I was a bit more bored than I than I imagined that I could have been. Like the the scenes with uh, Babyface. Sorry, I shouldn't call him that. <laughs> George Nelson. George Nelson. Like. It sets up for a great scene at the end where, you know, he's getting his he's getting his triumphant uh, electric chair death scene. But, you know, there are parts that just just I didn't get as engaged with as I thought that I was going to that I'd forgotten about because I'd really I'd been remembering this movie piecemeal with the parts that I really liked. But there are parts that just didn't really fill that void anymore. But still four stars. Like, it's, it's really well made. It feels very magical. It feels like a a... a it's got this kind of American magic to it. It's very much of a particular time and place, but with nostalgia and respect, it's 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 cool. It's just not one of the greatest things I've ever seen. But one of the greatest things I have ever seen is George Clooney as Everett, um, because that performance is just amazing. That he's he's this quick-witted dullard <laughs> just like he's so good at spouting nonsense but not quite he's, good enough at it uh what do they call it um so if you can't dazzle them with brilliance blind them with bullshit right and that's very much his skill and it's even a skill that john goodman or uh what's it, dan teague big uh, dan teague yeah big dan teague recognizes in everett and he's he kind of appeals to that where he's like i i recognize that you're a man who who like me is is very much about the gift of the gab and which you you see that big dan teague also has this skill but the difference is when big dan teague's speaking fails him he's also john freaking goodman and can like <laughs> break a tree out of the ground and clobber you with it like he has something to back it up when his bullshit becomes transparent but george Clooney just has so much fun with it and it's so much fun 
to watch that it's almost the kind of pleasure that you get when somebody's actually being really quick-witted and fun to watch like a like a Sherlock or like uh oh, what's the movie that Jason Bateman in Bad Words was amazing uh, amazing movie from last year just a fantastic performance of somebody being the smartest guy in the room where you get that fun but also with this like this pity and almost like a loathing of this person for thinking that they're getting away with it when everybody can see through it it's a lot of fun it's so much fun uh, that performance so definitely he's the mvp of the movie for me so uh yeah it's been a fun conversation about oh brother where art thou yeah. is uh, there anything going on with you that people should know about before we say goodbye for this week no um as always you can just uh find me on twitter and continue the conversation if you want um i'm at d-i-e-z-y-n Deason on twitter thank you so much for for coming on and uh, giving me a reason to watch this movie again even if i didn't love it I still really liked it. (laughs) That's good. I'm really glad. And we're going to have all the songs stuck in our head for the rest of the week. So Probably. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dylan. That's going to be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. If you like what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like articles, reviews, as well as a weekly look at what's new on Canadian Netflix. You can also find us on our social media platforms, starting with Facebook at facebook.com slash netflixpodcast. Over on Tumblr, you can find us at netflixpodcast.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also follow me at Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, drop a rating and review to let us know what you think. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards like shoutouts on the podcast or customized content, or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at Patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog because even if you think you've seen it all baby you ain't streamed nothing yet. <laughs>